fact, our insurance company requires that we have that as one of our rules. So in a couple months, a few of you that have expressed an interest, being new to the church but would like to serve in children's ministry, that will be a little more possible here in the month of October. And so uh, that will open up the possibility for us to maybe reconsider offering children's ministry both hours. So clear on that. Uh, second thing, right up here, uh, there is a letter we sent out, our elders sent out to our church this past week. Uh, most of you probably got it in the mail a couple days ago. If you didn't get a copy, I encourage you to grab one on the way out today. Uh, I don't want you to worry about it now, but it's right here on this speaker up front. You can grab a copy. It gives you an update on our financial situation and our giving here at Impact. We don't like to talk about money very often around here because we figure there's more important things to talk about. Uh, but they do give some important updates. So once again, if you didn't get a copy, feel free to grab one. We have extra copies up front for you. So John chapter 4 is where we are today as we're back in action with our Come and See message series, our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. We need you to have your message notes in hand along with a pen or pencil to fill in some blanks and jot down some notes as we dive into this message. And if you don't have a Bible in front of you, please just raise your hand. Barry and, and, and uh, Mikey are ready to go. They'd love to get you a Bible. Don't just take my word for it. See it for yourself right there in the Word of God. Come and see. Say those words with me. Come and see. As we've been diving into this great book of John in recent months, uh, we have received that invitation to come and see the greatness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, earlier this month, we came to the end of one of the best known and loved chapters in the New Testament, John chapter 3, where Nicodemus, that Jewish religious leader, Uh, One of the leaders in the Sanhedrin comes to Jesus one-on-one at nighttime and asks him some very important spiritual questions. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, you must be born again. He goes on in verses 16 and 17 to say, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to but to save the world through him. Later in the chapters we saw a few weeks ago, John the Baptist's followers, John the Baptist's disciples get a little miffed because Jesus comes into John the Baptist's backyard and starts teaching and baptizing others. And the disciples of John discover that Jesus actually is drawing a bigger crowd than John. And Jesus' disciples are baptizing more people than John. And so they get all offended on John's behalf. And I want to remind you, well, how John responds to his followers at the end of John chapter 3. Look what he says, beginning in verse 27 of John chapter 3. To this John replied, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Say that with me. He must become greater. I must become less. Or as some English translations put it, he must increase, and I must decrease. Say that with me. He must increase, and I must decrease. And so ends chapter 3, leading us into chapter 4. By the time we get to chapter 4, 
Jesus Christ has ministered to a number of men and women. He's already performed his first miracle, turning water into wine. He's already driven out the money changers in the temple courts after making that little whip. He's done a lot of great ministry. But what Jesus does here in chapter 4 catches everyone off guard. At the most unlikely time, in the most unlikely place, Jesus ministers to the woman at the well. And so here we are in John chapter 4, this great account of Jesus ministering to this very rejected and and disdained woman here at the well in Samaria, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself? as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks the water from this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Well, sir, give me this water so that I won't have to get thirsty and have to keep coming back to this well to, this well to draw water. He told her, Go. Call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. 
But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. May God bless us as we study and apply his word to our lives today. What a glorious passage. As the Apostle John begins chapter 4, he gives us only a a few brief details. Some of the Jewish religious leaders, those Pharisees, learned that Jesus was gaining more followers than John the Baptist. And John was famous for being the baptizer, right? That's what we call him, John the Baptist. And so he was famous for being a baptizer. The Pharisees find out Jesus is baptizing even more than John the Baptist. And so it appears here that the Pharisees are getting ready to pounce. And so Jesus, according to verse 3, when he learns that the Pharisees have found out about his growing popularity, he leaves Judea and goes back once more to Galilee. Now, verse 4 is a very short verse, and if you read this passage as we just did, you might not think much about it. But I think verse 4 is pretty significant here. It says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, if you know anything about the history of traveling north and south in Israel in the first century when Jesus lived, this should strike you as a little bit odd. It's puzzling because the truth is a Jewish traveler traveling from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north did not have to go through Samaria. Let's put this map on the screen for you. I want to point out a few things because this is, I think, rather important. Judea in the south, Galilee in the north, Samaria in the middle. Hopefully most of you can see that on the screen. And so the thing I like about this map is it shows us the roads in Jesus' day. Here we have a dashed road, a little hard to see, but you'll see a dashed road coming up the middle. That is a small road. And then the thick red line on the left side close to the Mediterranean Sea On the right side, over in the area of Perea, this dark red line shows a highway. So it's a little bit more highly traveled road, a little bit wider road. And so what most Jewish rabbis would do in Jesus' day, if they would travel from Judea in the south to, to Galilee in the north, they would not take the most direct route. If they had GPS back then and plugged it into their phone, uh, quickest route to Galilee, it would have told them to go straight up through Samaria. But... Pretty much every rabbi, except for Jesus in his day, refused to take that road because they believed that the Samaritans were detested by God. They believed it would defile them to even put their sandal on Samarian soil. And so they would actually cross the Jordan River to the east and take the highway up the east side of the Jordan River. And once they knew they were clear past Samaria, they would cross the Jordan River again into Galilee. And so it took a three-day journey and just about doubled it. But that was the most common route that the Jewish rabbis would take in Jesus' day. So when it says in verse 4, Jesus had to go through Samaria, someone that knows the geography and knows the history would retort back, no, he doesn't. Jesus doesn't have to go through Samaria. The Bible must be mistaken because there were other routes he could have taken, right? And then the fact remains that Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria because his GPS told him he had to go through Samaria. Jesus went through Samaria because God the Father said he had to go through Samaria. Jesus had a divine appointment with a young woman, maybe not so young, but a woman in Samaria. 
God had given him this appointment on this day for this purpose, to lead her to salvation. So Jesus comes into this area of Samaria with his disciples. We're not told about the dialogue. Maybe the disciples challenged him. Why are we stepping foot on Samarian soil? Why are we going through Samaria? Why are we going to buy food in Samaria? Because no rabbi would buy Samaritan food. No rabbi would drink Samarian water. They wouldn't do it. And so they must have questioned Jesus, but John gives us a short and sweet version. They follow Jesus' command. They go all the way to this well that, according to this woman, had been dug by Jacob himself. It was known for centuries as Jacob's well, and from what I understand, it's still there today. This well today is around 100 feet deep. Back then, it was probably even deeper. So this was a watering hole on this road leading north to south. And so at this watering hole, Jesus stops. Likely, he had already traveled that morning for some 20 miles from Judea. So he's hot, he's tired, and he's thirsty, and he sits down by this well. I think this passage shows us three of Jesus' character traits. I want you to jot these down because these are very important. First of all, it shows us Jesus' humanity. It shows us Jesus' humanity. Notice verse 6. It says, tired as he was from the journey... He sits down by the well. So if John is using the Jewish clock, the sixth hour would be high noon. And so it's 12 o'clock noon. And imagine if you were doing that today, hoofing it 10, 20 miles all morning long, 12 o'clock, it is hot, it is dry, your feet are sore because he didn't have any Jordans. Man, he just had those uncomfortable sandals he was wearing. And so he was tired and had to sit down. So John makes it clear from the very first chapter that Jesus was 100% God. Very first verse of John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He makes it clear in chapter 1, Jesus was 100% God, but also in these key places in the Gospel of John, he makes it clear Jesus was at the same time 100% man. And so verse 6 reveals that. He was tired. He was weary, he was thirsty, and he just needed to sit down. Have you ever been there? You feel like you can't take another step. Your dog tired, you're exhausted, you're hungry, you're thirsty. You just got to sit down. You got to take a little breather. Jesus was there. He was exhausted, probably both physically and emotionally. The second thing about Jesus' character this passage reveals that it shows Jesus' compassion, shows us the warmth of His compassion. As far as we know, as we read this passage, as far as we can tell, the Samaritan woman never does give him a drink of water. At first, she's just shocked that a Jewish rabbi is asking her, a Samaritan woman, for water. And so, at first, she doesn't give him water, but there's no indication that later on, as the conversation goes on, that she offered him water then either. I think she got a bit distracted. Then she drops her water bottle and takes off and goes back into town. And so as far as we know, Jesus never did get a drink from this lady. But that's okay because Jesus, as he tells his disciples, had food that they didn't even know about. He had water they didn't even know about. He was perfectly satisfied. By the end of that conversation with the Samaritan woman, he was no less hungry. He was no less tired. He was no less thirsty. But he was satisfied, wasn't he? Because he had done something that was infinitely more important than drinking some water from that well. His compassion for this woman was just breathtaking. Number three, it also shows us Jesus as the breaker down of walls. 
the breaker down of walls. And he really breaks down three walls in this passage. Number one, he breaks down the walls between Jews and Samaritans. For centuries, Jewish uh, men had prayed this prayer every morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for not making me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. Isn't that a wonderful prayer? We'll get to the women part in a moment, ladies, but the first part of that, thank you, God, for not making me a Gentile. You could replace that word Gentile with Samaritan. Thank you, God, for not making me a Samaritan. This is actually a prayer for centuries. Jewish men prayed every morning. So for starters, here in John chapter 4, Jesus breaks down the wall between Jews and Samaritans. It was common for Jewish rabbis to say, let no man eat of the bread of the Samaritans, for he who eats their bread is as he who eats swine's flesh. They thought to buy something in Samaria at the the local uh, 7-Eleven or the local Winco there in Samaria. If you did that, that was as bad as eating the most unclean animal any Jew could ever eat. A swine, a, a pig. And so that was obviously something most Jews thought was inexcusable. So Jesus breaks down that wall, doesn't he? Some rabbis even went as far as to pray that no Samaritans would be raised to eternal life. They prayed that Samaritans would all go to hell. They didn't want any of them to make it to heaven. The the prevailing view in Israel was that God detested the Samaritans. They wanted nothing to do with them. So the Jews hated the Samaritans. And by and large, the Samaritans hated the Jews as well. You see, the Jews thought the Samaritans were lowlifes. The Samaritans thought the Jews were self-righteous snobs. But here in John 4, Jesus breaks down this barrier between Jews and Samaritans. He is the king of the Jews, reaches out to this lowly Samaritan woman. The second wall he breaks down as the breaker down of walls. He breaks down this wall between men and women. In Jesus' day, those strict rabbis forbade other rabbis from talking to women in public. Remember that morning prayer. Thank you, God that I'm not a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. Now, ladies, if it's any consolation to you, uh, before the Jewish man said, thank you that I'm not a woman, he said, thank you that I'm not a Gentile. That's me. (laughs) So thank you, God, that I'm not Dane, and thank you that I'm not a woman. And while we're at it, thank you that I'm not a slave either. And so the Jewish men, the Jewish rabbis in particular, weren't really fond of women. Some rabbis refused to even speak to their wives or their daughters or their sisters in public. If they were outside of the house and you met your wife on the street, some rabbis wouldn't even talk to their own wife. And some of those Pharisees in Jesus' day were called bloody and bruised I think the actual term was bruised and bleeding Pharisees. And I've mentioned this before. What was a bruised and bleeding Pharisee? That was that Pharisee that was so strict about even looking at women in public that as soon as a Pharisee rabbi would see a a woman on the street, he would close his eyes or cover his eyes, but for some reason he would keep walking. And so he would run into walls and he would run into houses and buildings. And so he was all bloody and bruised. They called him bruised and bleeding Pharisees. And so these guys were militant in their misogyny. Now, that's a word that's thrown around a lot these days. Oh, yeah, you're not allowing women to do this, or uh, you don't allow women to preach in your church. You're a misogynist. And so that's one of those words, like racist, that's thrown around a little bit too much these days in our culture. But I think it would be safe to say 
that this was definitely misogyny in full operation because they definitely did have a strong discrimination and prejudice against women. Jewish rabbis didn't have a very high view of women's worthiness to learn God's word either. They used to say, uh, better that the words of the law should be burned than delivered to women. And that's something. Take the Bible and burn it before you teach it to women. But here in John 4, Jesus breaks down the barrier between men and women. He doesn't just have a, a shallow conversation in a public place with a Samaritan man. He has a deep spiritual conversation in a public place with a Samaritan woman. And she's not just any Samaritan woman, is she? Barrier number three, Jesus breaks down the barrier between the worthy and the unworthy. Not only did Jesus have a public conversation with a Samaritan woman, he had a conversation with a notorious, scandalous Samaritan woman, a woman of very low moral character. Although the passage doesn't tell us, it seems likely that she was coming to the well by herself in the heat of the day because the other women in town had shunned her. The common practice in those days was in the cool of the morning to go with other ladies to the well because those five-gallon jugs of water were heavy. You put five gallons of water in a jug and throw it over your shoulders, ladies, that's 40 pounds on your shoulder. And you wouldn't do this in the heat of the day, and you wouldn't do it by yourself. And so you read between the lines, it seems like she had been shunned by other women around her in her town. She comes in the heat of the day when no one else is there. She carries the water bottle by herself. As a five-time divorcee who is living with her latest boyfriend, most Jewish rabbis would have avoided this woman like the plague. No self-respecting rabbi would have ever sat down next to her at this well. No self-respecting rabbi would have ever talked with her. And no self-respecting rabbi would ever, ever under any circumstances, no matter how thirsty he was, ask her for a drink of water. But Jesus does all those things, doesn't he? According to most Samaritans, excuse me, according to most Jewish rabbis, this woman was damaged goods. Ever felt like that? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but ever felt like damaged goods? That's how they viewed this woman. They viewed her as a filthy sinner. They viewed her as a dirty whore. That's how they viewed this woman. Unworthy of God's mercy and grace. If they did come to believe in Jesus, they might say, Jesus, if you come to bring grace and forgiveness to the world, then certainly it does not apply to this woman. Maybe to some of these others that have gone to synagogue, those that have lived a good life, those that have been married once and been pretty good husbands and pretty good fathers and pretty good members of the community, uh, they deserve your mercy for you to forgive their few sins, but this one who has committed many sins certainly does not deserve it. But here in John 4, Jesus breaks down this barrier between the so-called worthy and the unworthy because Jesus understands better than anyone that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We ask the question, was this Samaritan woman undeserving of the grace of God? And the answer is, absolutely, she was unworthy. No doubt about it. But you're not worthy either. Was she unworthy of the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ? Absolutely, she was unworthy, but so am I. So am I. We are all unworthy of the grace and mercy of God. And Jesus breaks down this wall, revealing there is no so-called worthy person to receive his grace and a so-called unworthy person. We're all unworthy. And he's come equally 
for male and female, Jew and Gentile, those we think deserve salvation and those we think don't. It was one thing for Jesus to say in John 3.16 that God loved the world, but here in John 4, Jesus proves it. It was one thing for him to say in John 3.17 that he didn't come to condemn the world, but here in John 4, Jesus proves it because he refuses to condemn this woman that everyone else had condemned. At times during our study of the book of John, I've shown you a little video clip from the Chosen series. I've done this a few times when I thought there was a clip that was particularly good, and this is one I've been waiting to show you because it's one of the very best. And I want you to see this little clip of Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well. I think this is masterfully done. It's very clear as they present this, they did their homework. They spent time in the Word of God. They consulted with historians and biblical experts to get the setting and the interaction correct. And I think what this passage does, or this clip does so wonderfully, is present the compassion of Jesus and show how beautifully he broke down those barriers between Jew and Gentile, between male and female, between the so-called worthy and the unworthy. So I want you to follow along in your Bibles and see how closely it sticks to John chapter 4. Some extra dialogue is added. Take note of that. It's not in John 4. But I think overall this clip does a masterful job of showing the compassion of Jesus. If you can't see the full screen, I'm fine if you stand up and go to a part of the room where you can because this clip is so good. Would you give me a drink? Did you hear me? That's bad, huh? What? Are you a Jew? I've got a drink for me, a Samaritan, and a woman. I'm sorry. I should have said please. You know, it's not safe for you to be alone out here. Nor you. Why haven't you come with others? Why so late in the day? Don't women come to the wells in the cool of the morning? Yeah, well, none of them will be seen with me, so I have to come up now. In the heat. You look so kindly to my feet. Why won't they be seen with you? Long story. I'd still like a drink of water if, if you can spare it. Anything but a parched throat will do. Aren't I unclean to you? Won't you be defiled by this vessel? Maybe some of my people say that about your women, but... Basically, was communicating so well. Dear woman, you matter to God and you matter to me. Jesus didn't shame her. He didn't condemn her. He convicted her so that she could be changed by his grace and mercy. Here at Impact, I strive to be a good teacher. I strive to model for you what it means to, to worship and follow Jesus in spirit and in truth. But more than anything else, I think especially on a day like this, I think it's important that that conviction be a part of it. I don't want you to walk away this morning and and simply believe that you were taught something from God's Word or that uh, you got to see Dane or someone else in this church that modeled uh, how to follow Christ on a Sunday morning. I, I want you to walk away with the conviction of the Holy Spirit coming to that point where, like this woman, you want to change. You want to get right with God. You want to be in the center of His will, and you want to make those decisions 
that he's called you to make. Unless you're convicted by the bad news that your sin is wretched and it separates you from our holy God, you'll never feel compelled to confess your sin and embrace the good news that Jesus Christ is your only hope of salvation. Why do so many people across our nation hear a gospel message and leave that message unchanged? Because they don't experience the conviction in their heart. You know what? God's not speaking to the one next to me. He's speaking to me. And I need to change. Life lesson number two. This is a quote from William Barclay. I think it's so good. There are two revelations in Christianity. The revelation of God and the revelation of ourselves. We never really see ourselves until we see ourselves in the presence of Christ. And then we are appalled at the sight. One of the most remarkable things about this account between Jesus and the woman at the well is that 180 degree turn that she makes in the matter of a few minutes. Isn't that pretty amazing? So think about it. Why does she come to the well alone? Among other reasons, she comes to the well alone because she doesn't want to be around other people. She doesn't want to talk to other people. She doesn't want to have conversations, particularly spiritual conversations, with other people. And she certainly doesn't want anyone to start bringing up her past, right? And so she certainly was shunned and was not allowed to come to the well with the other women, I think it's safe to say. But at the same time, she enjoyed not having to hear any of that. And by the end of this conversation, notice the 180 degree turn. Not only is she not walking away from people, she begins running toward people. At the end of this conversation, all of a sudden, she's not avoiding and shunning spiritual conversations. She's initiating spiritual conversations. She's not walking away from her village. She's running into her village to tell anyone who will listen, not only about Jesus, but how Jesus had changed her. He told me everything I've ever done. What a remarkable change. At the beginning of this conversation with Jesus, she didn't want anyone to know about the skeletons in her closet. But something remarkable oftentimes happens when you experience the grace of God. When you come into the presence of Jesus Christ, you realize that your sin is much worse than you ever imagined it was. And so you come under that point of realizing and that conviction that comes with it, realizing that you are a wretched sinner in the presence of a holy God. But once you reach out and receive that grace and that mercy, it's amazing how Christians will oftentimes start sharing with others the skeletons in their closet. It's just as bad as it was before they met Christ. Those memories can be just as painful, but those memories and those sins have been bathed in the grace of Christ. You've experienced that, many of you. You've experienced others that have shared their testimonies. They never would have shared those skeletons before finding Christ. But once they experience His grace and they start worshiping Him, they begin freely sharing what they did because it shines the spotlight on the grace of Jesus. Later in life, the writer of the great hymn Amazing Grace, John Newton, wrote these words. He wrote, Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. I love that quote. He was the one that was a slave ship captain as a young adult, forcing Africans against their will into the hull of his ship, forcing them into the slave trade in England. And he was so ashamed of what he had done once he became a Christian. But at the same time, he was willing to share that because it shined the spotlight on the grace of Christ. There was a wretch 
that was changed by the grace of Christ. And I want to tell you about him and how good he's been to me. When Jesus comes into your life and covers you in his grace, like John Newton, you can't help but proclaim amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Amen? Amen. We serve an awesome God. Finally, life lesson number three. Notice that Christ asked the woman, this is a quote, by the way, from Charles Ryrie, Notice that Christ asked the woman to receive him and his gift without any prerequisite change in her life. After she believed, and because she believed, her way of living would be changed. Amen? This is such a great insight. Sometimes you'll talk to a pastor or go to a church, and they say, yeah, you can accept Christ, but first you need to change your lifestyle. You can accept Christ, but first you need to start doing this. Yeah, you can accept Christ, but first you need to stop doing that. Yes, you can accept Christ, but first you need to attend four weeks of a baptism class. Jesus doesn't do this with a Samaritan woman, does he? Think about it. She does not move out of her boyfriend's house when she gets saved. She hasn't done it already. When she runs into town, having experienced the grace of Christ, her stuff's still in her boyfriend's house. Jesus, as the all-seeing creator of heaven and earth, could see everything in this woman's life. We've only seen a smidgen of it. He could see everything, and he didn't make her change any of it prior to getting saved, did he? Isn't it remarkable? You get saved, and then the Holy Spirit comes into your life and works with you to make the change. So some of you might be here tonight or this morning, and you look back on this past week. Some of you may even look back at last night, and you were high on something last night. I'm not going to tell you today you have to be clean and sober for 30 days before you can accept Christ. I'm not going to tell you that because that's not biblical. Some of you may have slept with your boyfriend or girlfriend last night. And Jesus doesn't say, you quit doing that and then come to me and get saved. Some of you may have treated your spouse terribly in the past week. Some of you may have skeletons in the closet you don't want anyone to know about. And Jesus simply extends his arms today and says, come to me. And catch this. So many people think, and many pastors have been misleading with this, You get all your ducks in a row, you get your life in order, and then Jesus Christ will accept you and let you get saved. That is a lie from Satan. You and I can never get all our ducks in a row. That's why Jesus came. You can never be presentable to God. That's why Jesus came. No matter what your sin is, even if you did that sin an hour ago or ten minutes ago, Jesus Christ says, come. Jesus Christ says, come. He says, come and trust in me as Savior and Lord. Come, being ready to repent of your sin. To say, God, I'm sorry what I've done. I'm sorry for what I've done. And I know I need to make some changes, but come into my life and help me begin making them today. Jesus Christ doesn't say come back next week once you've fixed your life because you'll never get it fixed. Today is the day of salvation. Now, don't get me wrong. If you decide to accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, He's not just giving you fire insurance and you go back to living however the hell you want to live. That doesn't work. His grace isn't cheap. I guarantee you, He's going to ask you to make some changes. 
Some of those changes will be in one hour. Some of those changes will be tomorrow. Some of those changes will be next week or next year. But he's going to ask you to make some changes because you're not behind the wheel of your life anymore. You give your life to Jesus. He's in charge. He's taking the wheel. So you don't have to get everything right before you make this decision. But you be ready to put him in charge and be prepared to have him ask you to do some things you do not want to do and to make some changes you don't want to make because he's in charge and he's going to do what's best for you. He loved this woman at the well and he loves you. He offers grace to her. He offers grace to you. Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name thanking you for the privilege of being able to come to you and accept your grace and mercy. I pray if there's anyone here who has never accepted you as Savior and Lord, that they would make that decision right now to accept you as Savior and Lord. To come to you and say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I'm ready to repent of my sin. I'm ready to give my life to you and I ask that the Holy Spirit of God would come into my life and help me make those changes you want me to make. And help me be bold enough and humble enough to make those changes as you lead me to make them. Lord, I'm ready to confess you as my Savior and Lord. And I'm ready, O oh God, to make this decision if I haven't made it yet to be baptized. To be buried with Christ in baptism. Raised to walk a new life. Lord Jesus, cleanse us. Wash us clean. Help us to get right with you. And then walk in step with you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to have a few of our prayer counselors up here. And it is Decision Sunday. If you've decided to make a decision for Christ, as we sing this one last song, I'm going to ask that you come forward. Maybe you made the decision to accept Christ for the first time. Maybe you've made that decision to accept Christ and obey Him in Christian baptism for whatever reason you haven't been baptized before. Today is the day. Now, we have a couple here planning on getting baptized. Maybe you want to join them. Or maybe you are a baptized Christian. You say, you know what? I want to commit myself to this church. I've been church hopping. I've been church shopping. I've been church ditching. You know, I've been doing it all. And I'm ready to say, you know, as a baptized Christian, I believe God has led me here. I want to make this my church home. But the ladies are going to lead us in singing this song one last time. Hungry, I come to you. We're going to be standing together right now. You come. If you need prayer or if you have a decision to make for Christ, you come.